0: Hello, you're listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samir Keynes, the trade and globalization editor for The Economist.
1: And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics.
0: This episode is one that we have been promising for a while. We're going to be talking to Paul Bluestein, a senior fellow at the Center for International Governance Innovation, about his new book, Schism, China, America, and the fracturing of the global trading system.
1: Paul's book covers a lot of stuff. But we thought we would dive deeply into one of the things that Paul writes about, which is how hard it was for China to get into the World Trade Organization, or the WTO.
0: Right now, there are a lot of people in Washington, DC, who think that there was something wrong about that decision. And maybe if we knew then what we know now, perhaps something would have been done differently. I think if you take away anything from this discussion, it's that these talks were really difficult. The Chinese definitely didn't come away thinking, "Haha, we've we've screwed over the Americans." If anything, it was the opposite.
1: Before we start, there are a few things that listeners should know. China was actually one of the founding members of the WTO's predecessor, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, all the way back in 1947. But shortly after the GATT got started, there was a change in the Chinese government. The communists took over, and their new leadership just wasn't interested in participating in the multilateral system.
0: The other thing to to frame this discussion is that China's eventual entry into the WTO was was a multi-step process. Before China could be accepted by the general membership, it basically had to get sign-off from the U.S., So first, there was a massive bilateral negotiation that happened between the U.S. and China. And it's those bilateral discussions that our conversation with Paul is going to be focusing on. Now, obviously, getting into the World Trade Organization properly means that everyone has to sign on. It's a consensus-based organization. But the way things worked in this case, it was the U.S. that was really the toughest hurdle. Now, we all know the end of this story. China got into the WTO in December of 2001. But the story started 15 years earlier. It took China 15 years to get in. I started off by asking Paul what the various setbacks were.
2: Well, when China so China first wanted to get back in in 1986 when it started to become an export powerhouse, and at that time it was a, a an incredibly poor backward country, and there didn't seem to be that much of a problem with the idea of having. Uh, I mean, there were plenty of other poor and backward countries that were in the GAT, and the negotiations were going, uh, you know, fairly swimmingly until. June of 1989, when I'm, as I'm sure many of your listeners remember the Tiananmen Square incident, to put it very euphemistically, and then the, the idea of, of bringing China into the, into the GATT was off the table for a long,
1: long time. To any listeners who don't know, in 1989, Chinese soldiers fired on and killed hundreds of peaceful students and pro-democracy protesters in Beijing.
2: But China continued to do business internationally and continued to pursue its efforts to try to integrate itself with the trading system throughout the 90s, very successfully, I might add. uh, I mean, it was attracting a lot of uh, multinational companies from the United States, even though the U.S. Congress was uh, every year having a vote about whether China would be allowed basically to sell its goods in the United States. They would review the human rights policy of China and say, well, have you done good enough in the past year? And every year, big multinational companies in China would uh, would, would would manage to persuade Congress that it would be a very bad idea to, to just basically cut things off. But year after year, this was really causing a lot of uncertainty for the Chinese economy, whether they were going to be able to continue to do business in their biggest market. So China was really badly wanted in, and so the, so. But the negotiations continued. Uh, China was, still wasn't allowed to to get in, even after 1995, when the WTO was created. The idea of letting them in uh, was still because of, of Tiananmen Square was was uh, was just not not on. I remember one of the stories I heard was was really interesting. In 1998, there was a big summit in uh, Beijing where, where, where President Clinton uh, went to to meet. President Jiang Zemin. I was actually coincidentally there and was covering the uh, uh, very friendly state dinner. But the ne- negotiations were still stalled because, partly because of the political reaction in the United States toward China, partly because China simply wasn't ready. To take the steps, as far as the U.S. was concerned, to liberalize its economy enough, and Charlene Barshevsky, who was the, the U.S. trade representative uh, at the time, told me that she passed uh, Bill Clinton in the in the hall of their hotel, and he said, are, "You know, are we getting close?" And she said, "Nope, we're nowhere." And he said, "Okay." So the U.S. was continuing to just say, "No, China, you're not ready. You can't. You cannot uh, get into this uh, to this organization." But finally, in 1999, uh, things really started heating up.
1: So, so what happened? What what made 1999 kind of this key turning point for eventually getting China into the WTO? Well, I would say that mo-
2: the key turning point was that Zhu Rongji became premier of China, and he was a, a, a guy who had been picked by Deng Xiaoping, the the supreme leader of China, in in who took over after Mao Zedong. He would he. Zhu was recognized by Deng as a not only a, a guy who really understood economics much better than most other people in the in the Chinese government at the time, but who had real leadership capacities. And he became premier. He had been vice premier in charge of the economy starting in 1991, and did, did a you know really did an amazing job with privatizing a lot of the state-owned enterprises. And I say privatizing, he wasn't completely privatizing them, but but they were selling off good parts of them. To the stock market and trying to turn them into profit-making entities, and that was a very successful thing. So, so, so he was rewarded uh, by being promoted from vice premier to premier, and at that, and he was really the visionary who brought China in. And he be, and once he began really pushing for it, in late 1998, then things started to really, I think, to move.
0: Now, obviously, China had some tricky internal politics.
2: Well, I mean, Zhu Rongji, you know, couldn't have couldn't single handedly push, uh, you know, the Chinese Party State in a liberalizing direction. But he he really did he really did push hard. He he overcame resistance from from hardliners. Like his predecessor was Li Peng, who was uh, vilified for his role in the Tiananmen Square massacre, and and Li Peng had the attitude that you know we have to we have to keep our State enterprises; these are the, you know, the crown jewels of our of our Maoist system. Zhu Rongji thought that these things were dinosaurs; that they were holding the, the Chinese economy back. I think he was absolutely right. They were a huge drag. Uh, they required massive subsidies. They were extremely inefficient. They were they absorbed enormous amounts of bank loans that could have been could have been lent to much more productive enterprises. And so he was really pushing hard to move the uh, rest of the leadership in a direction so that China could open up and meet the requirements that the U.S. was insisting on.
1: I think the point to take away here is just how recent the political embrace of China was. This was in the late 1990s when the U.S. was saying, no, on human rights, on the incompatibility of of China's economic system, we're just not going to let you trade with us on the terms that you want.
0: So the year is 1999, negotiations are really stuck, they hadn't been going anywhere. But then there's something of a turning point. Alan Greenspan, then the chairman of the Federal Reserve, who we really wouldn't normally associate with trade policy, he helped to move things along. He was in China to just talk about unrelated things, the Chinese financial system, the Asian financial crisis, that that sort of thing. And he had this meeting with Zhu Rongji. The State Department essentially coached him to try and get the Chinese to be more forthcoming in these trade talks. And meanwhile, the people in the U.S. embassy in China were contacting everyone that they could think of, everyone in the Chinese government, for example, to tell them to, to please to try to be more forthcoming, to try and, and make more of an effort with these talks, or else the U.S. might give up
2: after they talked mostly about monetary and banking issues, uh, Zhu Rongji said, you know, excuse me, there's there's one subject I need to bring up with you. I apologize. I know this um, uh, this isn't your area, but I'm going to meet with President Clinton in April in Washington. I've been invited for a summit. And I hope that at that time, uh, we might reach an agreement for China to enter the WTO. And he mentioned several conditions that China would be prepared to make in terms of how fast it would be willing to liberalize Transition periods wouldn't be that long, that kind of thing, and Greenspan, who had who had been who had been primed to to expect this, uh, said, "Well, actually, uh, that's of great interest to me." So he then uh, brought word back to Washington, and uh, I actually got to see. Someone showed me notes of a meeting that among sort of the high-ranking trade officials, when they they were meeting, and they were just trying to decide. You know, are we going to are we going to really try to pursue? this whole effort this year to, to get China into the WTO. And oh look, uh, Greenspan met with Zhu Rongji and it really sounds like they're ready to do business. So that, that really was a, a kind of a pivotal moment in the, in the whole saga. So after these positive signals, the talks really get going. Charlene Barshevsky and and a guy named Bob Cassidy, who was the assistant U.S. trade representative for China, and some of the deputies in the U.S. trade representative's office were flying back and forth constantly. And Chinese were also flying. They were flying from Beijing to Washington. And, you know, I mean, because this, they were negotiating over, you know, an immensely complicated agreement that involved incomprehensibly voluminous and and detailed issues about how the Chinese economy was going, you know, what they were going to have to do in order to gain admission to the WTO. And of course, China wanted to do as little as possible as as and then do it as slowly as possible. And the Americans were, were putting their foot down and saying, no, it has to be done. It has to be done quickly and it has to be done a lot. Uh, but because of Zhu Rongji, who really in his heart of hearts, he believed that what a lot of what the Americans were demanding would be good for China. The Chinese government became much, much more forthcoming during that was, that, the spring months of, of 1999, after the the meeting between Greenspan and, and, and Zhu Rongji. So uh, a lot of progress was being made, and this was really, this was gonna be a, you know, uh, it was looking like, it was, this was shaping up as a very historic summit between uh, Zhu Rongji and Bill Clinton.
1: As those talks are going on, the two sides were negotiating over a massive range of issues, including standard market access and some that went deeply into the way the Chinese system of governance worked. Across the board, um, the U.S. was demanding liberalization,
2: meaning lowering tariffs. uh, Chinese tariffs on on autos, for example, were at 100 percent. Auto parts, uh, all sorts of manufactured products, all sorts of agricultural products. There were a lot of quotas to limit the amount of imports that could come into the country uh china was becoming this incredible market over a period of years it would it would set up enough fo- more phone lines four times the number of phone lines or something that then were then even existed in britain and so all these american companies were desperate to get into that market the chinese were saying if you want if you want a piece of this lucrative action you have to you know set up a, a chip manufacturing facilities in china the the u.s was saying you can't do that anymore we're not going to allow you to require foreign companies to transfer technology, just as, as as a condition of access to the Chinese market. Now, this of course remains a bone of contention today. Whether China has has uh, has really gone along with that. One of the most important things was was transparency, because the way the Chinese system worked, it was kind of mind boggling. If you were a a foreign business person in China, or even a domestic. A Chinese business person, and you ran afoul of some regulation. Some official could pull out a regulation or a law and say, "You're in tr- big trouble now, uh, pal." And the uh, business person would say, "Wait, I didn't. I didn't know that such a that law existed. Oh yes. Oh yes. We have that law. You, just, you know, we don't have to publish them all. You know, we just have them." So the one of the most important things the, U, the U.S. side wanted was an insistence that look, if you're going to have these regulations or laws, whatever they are, you know, you can't enforce them unless they're published. And, you know, this sounds like, duh, okay, why not? Should, why shouldn't you publish laws? Any modern system has that. But China didn't at that time. That's the way their legal system
1: worked. So that was, that was a, a, a crucial demand for, for, for the U.S. side. There were some areas where the Chinese were just not going to give the United States what they wanted, there were some things that were just off-limits. Still a bone
2: of contention today is telecommunications. The Chinese were simply not willing to open their market to allow foreigners to operate telecommunications service companies because, you know, China is its a dictatorship. I mean, they simply don't allow... People to say anything uh, that they want, and they thought that if they allowed foreign telecommun- you know, foreign telecommunications companies in, that uh, there would be a lot more difficult for them to restrict that. But for most other products, the U.S. was demanding a lot of liberalization, and uh, and, and Zhu Rongji was uh, was pushing as hard as he could to get his colleagues to go along.
1: It's important to remember that as all this was going on, there was a lot of concern on the Chinese side about. What all this would actually mean. I mean, part of it was ideological—the idea that you know we're, you
2: know, after all we're, you know, we're loyal communists and and we shouldn't give up our prized state-owned enterprises. And but a, bar, a lot of it was fear of what would happen to to you know ordinary Chinese workers and farmers. Looking back on it, it's really striking to see how fearful, large. Elements in the Chinese establishment—not just the government, but the, the in academia, in uh, think tanks in China—they were a lot of them were very concerned. The term that was sort of popular about all this is "is uh, the wolf is coming." On the American side, there were also people think, worried about the wolf is coming if we let China in. But uh, but on the Chinese side, there was, and it's it's quite understandable that they would be as concerned as they were because America. American business in the late 1990s was was really, I mean, it was the envy of the world. You know, this was the period of the the dot com bubble, and you know all these hotshot companies were flourishing. So you know uh, the Asian financial crisis had occurred. So Asia was uh, was not looking like such a miracle anymore. Europe was still struggling to keep up with uh, with U S. companies.
0: Now, obviously, there were worries on the U.S. side, too, from organized labor, from some who worried that even after any reforms, China's legal system was just not going to sit well alongside the norms of, of the multilateral rules-based system.
1: It's not the case that everyone in the U.S. thought that this would go well. But it does seem like the fears in China that this would be an economic disaster were much more widespread than in the U.S.,
0: Back to the negotiations. Remember, after this meeting with Zhu Rongji and Alan Greenspan, the negotiators are working overtime, They're flying back and forth between Beijing and D.C. They're trying to get this deal for, for the summit in the spring of 1999.
2: So this summit that was going to occur in basically April 7th, uh, April 12th or so in Washington was going to be an action forcing event, as some at some often are, uh, which everyone thought was likely to end in an agreement between, between Zhu Rongji and Clinton to, that would pave the way for China to enter the WTO. And and the negotiations were really heating up, even, even just before in the days just before you arrived in washington his chief negotiator uh long Yongtu arrived two days before and immediately went into negotiations with with charlene barshevsky and her team and they reached agreement on some of the some of the still outstanding crucial issues and clinton was giving all these signs indicating that he was ready he gave a, a speech on april 7th just as just as as jew was flying from los angeles he said the bottom line is if China is willing to play by the global rules of trade, it would be an inexplicable mistake for the United States to say no. So all the signs were pointing toward an agreement. However, behind the scenes, there was a huge debate going on within within the White House and, the, and top uh, levels of the of the cabinet. Uh, the u s. government was really divided. and this was this was there was a lot of stuff out in the press about this, bit between people who thought, that it would be a real mistake to say no at this summit, and people who thought, no, we really, we do have to say no at this summit. Not absolutely no, China will never get into the WTO, but if we strike a deal now, we'll be accused by all of, of China's critics, I and mean, we'll be accused by the labor movement, by, all, by the Republicans, who were then just absolutely bashing Bill Clinton for this, that, and the other thing. And Clinton was in a politically weakened position at that point because, remember, the Monica Lewinsky scandal. Uh, he had just survived impeachment and he did not want to have to say to Democratic members of Congress, you got to take this really tough vote to let China into the WTO. So there was a, the politicos in the White House were saying, Mr. President, we can't cut this deal now, you'll get clobbered. Uh, we won't be able to get it through Congress, uh, even if you do cut the deal. So there was a huge debate going on, uh, but a lot of the, the foreign policy establishment was very concerned that by saying no to Zhu Ji and really causing him to lose face, that he would be then be become uh, incredibly weakened within the Chinese establishment. So there was, a big debate was going on.
0: And then what happened? What did Clinton decide?
2: after giving this speech at which he said it would be an inexplicable mistake to say no, Clinton said no. He, he did it as only Bill Clinton can do, you know, with his arm around Jew's shoulder and, you know, really glad handing him and all. Uh, he did it in a way that was designed to, you know, not really anger him, but he took him to the yellow room, in the White House, which is in, in a, on the residence side with a glorious view overlooking Washington at night. And he said, look, my foreign policy people tell me that if we don't, if we don't strike a deal, that you'll really be uh, you, you know you'll really be damaged uh, and and your whole move toward reform in china will be will be hurt. Now if that's true then I'm I'm ready to call Charlene Barshevsky and have her get with your people and maybe you can you know work out the the, the last details. But uh, I hope you understand uh, that my, my political people are concerned that if we do a deal now, we won't be able to get it through Congress. And that would be bad for both of us. So he was, he was, he was laying it on thick, but he was basically, but Zhu Longji understood exactly what was going on. Clinton was saying, politically, I'm not ready to do this. I'm, I'm really worried about being criticized. So at that point, the summit became colossal failure.
0: So against everyone's expectations, in the spring of 1999, the deal did not get done. The Chinese side was furious.
2: It then got even worse because even at the us trade representatives office people thought that a deal was going to be done so they had drawn up a a 17 page piece of paper you know just and in 17 pages you could only summarize all the things that china was agreeing to do as part of this huge deal and they put it out on the internet for everyone to see. And at that time in China you could you know you could see pretty much any website you wanted as long as it didn't talk about Tiananmen Square and Tibet and certain in Taiwan certain other f- sort of forbidden issues. So even in China they could see these these incredible concessions that 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 the Chinese side was making. This this absolutely infuriated the Chinese even more than they, you know, as, as disappointed as they were that they weren't getting the deal struck that they wanted. They were also being embarrassed by showing that they had actually been extremely forthcoming in trying to negotiate with the U.S. The sort of hilarious thing was that the, the U.S. side put out this story that this had been a mistake, you know, that somebody had sort of pressed the send button, and and published this document that had been prepared, and do- it was logical that the document would be prepared because people at U at the U S Trade Representative's office thought a deal was going to be done. You have to you have to tell the public, you know, what are the terms that have been struck. So they had to have this document ready. So they made it sound as if they had accidentally published this very sensitive, you know. Very sensitive document, full of showing what all the, the Chinese concessions were. In fact, you know, I've talked to the people involved, and they say no. Th- this was this was a deliberate and and in retrospect quite brilliant Machiavellian ploy. With Charlene Barshevsky being you know the, pretty much the ringleader, she figured that if these concessions were all published in, in black and white, that U.S. companies would see. What they were supposed to be getting, and it would be more difficult for uh, once a deal was struck for China to backtrack on those things because then there would be screaming and yelling in the u s. saying, well, why are we you know why are we giving in on things that they've already that China has already conceded on?
1: This may have been a Machiavellian move, but there were costs. The Chinese negotiator standing in China was damaged. The Chinese were really upset. This is not what they wanted out of this big summit. They were embarrassed, and they were incredibly angry at their American counterparts.
0: Now, the Chinese may have been angry, but part of Charlene's plan really did seem to work. The business community were absolutely fuming at all of these potential concessions that they could have got out of the Chinese that now they weren't going to get. There was a lot of blowback against Bill Clinton as well, a lot of criticism for for letting the big one get away.
1: Even though the Chinese were angry, the talks didn't stop. One of the U.S. negotiators goes over to China. He gets yelled at. The Chinese say the U.S. is is going to have to concede on a few things. But yes, okay, they can all proceed based broadly on where they had gotten to just before the summit.
0: So May 7th, a few weeks after the summit, Charlene Barshevsky, the U.S. chief negotiator, goes to the White House with this plan, says to Bill Clinton, this is what we're going to do. Bill Clinton says, okay, just make sure we don't concede on anything too big, but but okay.
2: So that very day, a B-1B bomber took off from Whiteman Air Force Base in Missouri and flew to Belgrade on a mission in the war over Kosovo and unleashed five precision-guided missiles that struck the Chinese embassy in Belgrade. It was because of some uh, mistake by the CIA. The missiles, they hit the the building that they were supposed to hit, but it turned out because of some outdated map that uh, it was now the Chinese embassy that was located in that building. So three people were killed. And this all happened on a Friday evening in Washington that uh, news broke that uh, on CNN, this is how the White House found out about it, because you know, that's the way news traveled by that point. So the White House went into overdrive to try to draft an apology for this mistake, this tragic mistake of having you know bombed the Chinese embassy. And a, and a letter from Clinton was delivered to the Chinese embassy on Sunday morning. The Chinese simply didn't believe it. And to this day, you can talk to people in China who say, no, we're convinced this was a a deliberate act by the United States. The reasons for it are, you know, from an American standpoint, from a Western standpoint, inexplicable. Why would the U.S. do such a thing? But, you know, the Chinese have this mentality that as they develop, uh, other countries are going to try to keep them down, particularly the U.S., and there were all sorts of, I, I think I would call them conspiracy theories in China. Anyway, there were riots there. And, you know, the the discussions that went on in the Chinese leadership, it's very clear that most, most of them did not believe that this was an accident.
0: This is a lot of drama for one trade negotiation. But we all do know how it ends. They do eventually push past these setbacks to get a deal. The bombing happened in May— And by November, they've managed to pick things up again, and they're really, really close.
1: There was still some more drama, obviously. The Americans walked out at one point. They even phoned President Clinton and said, we're sorry, it would be unseemly to agree to this deal.
0: But the next day, after five days of talks on what was supposed to be a two-day trip by Charlene and her team in, in Beijing, they go to the trade ministry in China for one last try.
2: At a meeting that took place on Sunday morning that had been scheduled, the American side went to the trade ministry. This was at the the Chinese trade ministry. And people had been up all night. Each side was furious at the other, uh, at how things were going. But then Wu Yi, a sort of matronly looking woman, but uh, a very tough Chinese negotiator, a very high ranking woman in the Chinese leadership, appeared at at the doorway and brought the news that the premier, Zhu Ji, was coming to the trade ministry, which, and this, in Chinese terms, is really huge because for a premier to sort of lower himself in protocol terms by coming to a mere ministry to meet with people from the other side, I mean, that, is, that sends a huge message. We are ready to deal. And that's exactly what happened. They went to the 11th floor of the trade ministry, and had a, had a meeting, Charlene Barshevsky leading the US side and Zhu Ji leading the Chinese side. And the Chinese didn't give on everything, but they gave on a lot, enough that as far as the Americans were concerned, they they thought they had a deal that they could take back to Washington and sell credibly as everything that they could possibly get. So, I mean, things almost fell apart, but the fact that, again, that, that Zhu Rongji went the ministry in that way was I think a clear indication that the Chinese badly wanted in and were willing to deal.
0: Let's fast forward now. China enters the World Trade Organization and the question is, was that a mistake? Could the Americans have secured better terms
2: So looking back on this whole process of how the negotiations unfolded in November of 1999, when the final deal was struck in these long negotiations that went on for, you know, basically around the clock for six days, it's reasonable to ask, to look back on it, because so much controversy has arisen about what, you know, China's entry into the WTO, was that a good thing or not? It's reasonable to wonder, you know, was the U.S. somehow gulled into, uh, into letting the Chinese slide in? one of the most interesting pieces of evidence that i found in my research it's a book by a the author is a pseudonym zong hiren and the reason it's a pseudonym is that it's about developments at very high levels inside the chinese government that are not you know they're of course sh- uh, shrouded in secrecy uh, under normal circumstances he, and it's and it's clear that Uh, that the author is very close to Zhu Rongji. The book is called Zhu Rongji in 1999. It was published in 2002 in Chinese. So according to this book, which again is regarded as an authoritative account of meetings that were taking place in very high levels of the Chinese government, Zhu Rongji said to his colleagues, we must cast away illusions that the U.S. will make concessions and take a step backward if we adopt a tough stance. And I read that sentence. I thought, well, this is really compelling evidence that, from the Chinese standpoint, their backs were to the wall. They felt that they were being, you know, their U.S. counterparts were extremely tough and not, and you know, not going to give in if China tried to tried to play tough with them. Now, at that same meeting, Li Peng, who was the, you know, hard a hard leader of the hardliners within the Chinese leadership. We're saying, we sh- no, we, we don't have to give in to the Americans. We can, we can wait another 13 years, because it had then been 13 years since China had tried to get and enter the, the GAT. We can wait another 13 years if we have to. The U.S. bullies other countries, and we don't need to submit to this sort of bullying. But Zhu Rongji eventually won the day. And the Chinese side, recognizing that they were up against an extremely tough set of negotiators and, a, and, a, and, a, and a, taking a very hard stance on what China was going to have to do. They the, A deal was finally signed.
0: So perhaps in China's entry to the World Trade Organization, which was primarily a negotiation between China and America, that deal then set the foundations for this wider deal that the rest of the membership would then accept. Perhaps nothing more could have been done to make it tougher on the Chinese. Do you think there were any mistakes made after that?
2: Yeah, both. I mean, the administrations that came after did make mistakes, I think. The Bush administration understandably thought, as the Clinton administration had, thought that by joining the WTO, China was really signaling it was going to be moving toward a market economy, and there would be ups and downs. And, you know, I've talked I've talked to a lot of people who were in the Bush administration handling trade issues, and that's what they've told me. They said, we realize, boy, were we wrong about that, because China did turn much more towards state capitalism and and sort of the China Inc. system. We, you know, we realize now
1: that we were too optimistic. As Paul's book makes clear, China's entry into the WTO did achieve a lot. China made a bunch of reforms. Its economy is now unrecognizable compared to where it was back before it joined the WTO. Some of that is because of the reforms that were pushed through because of this whole process. But obviously, there were problems. China's management of its currency created a huge backlash within the United States. And American workers didn't adjust to the new import competition in the way that economists would have predicted. Though on that point, I would argue that it was probably more of a failure of America's domestic policy and not the fault of the trade negotiators.
0: Listeners really should read Paul's book to learn about what happened next. And of course, listen to trade talks. Uh, He talks about the fiasco of tackling currency manipulation at the IMF. He talks about the more recent step backwards and the retrenchment of state-owned enterprises under President Xi Jinping.
1: Paul also talks about all the problems that arose when China's legal system interacted with the multilateral rules-based system. For all of its reforms, the opacity of the Chinese system made it extremely difficult to hold it to account. Looking at Chinese law... There's no written-down rule that requires companies transfer their technology, but in a lot of cases, it still happened. And under WTO rules, there are limits on what subsidies that the the government is allowed to give. But in China, it can be very unclear where the government stops and where the private sector begins. And that makes it hard to enforce the rules that, in theory, China has signed up to. Yeah, the way
2: I look at it is that the way China has evolved— has created an existential challenge to the global trading system, to the WTO, because not because of the terms by which China entered were were bad, but because China managed to evolve in a way that the rulebook can't cover.
0: Obviously, we will never know what might have been. Maybe the negotiators could have waited for longer before letting China into the system. Maybe they could have never let China in at all. Maybe we would be in a different position right
1: now. Maybe, even though China's system did evolve in a way that made it harder to enforce the rules, countries could have tried harder to do it.
0: We'll never know. But I would love to hear any listeners with very strong views either way. Paul, thank you very much.
2: It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much.
0: That is all for Trade Talks. A huge thank you to Paul Bluestein, Senior Fellow at the Center for International Governance Innovation. Do read his new book, Schism, China, America, and the Fracturing of the Global Training System. And do read my review of his book on www.economist.com. We'll tweet it out.
1: Thanks also to Colin Warren, who handles our audio.
0: Now, Colin isn't responsible for all the weird music inserts. That was me. If you find it annoying, let us know, but please say something nice, too. Otherwise, I'll feel really sad. Uh, If you find it atmospheric and awesome, then I really want to know.
1: Give us a shout out and rate us on iTunes. Or you can tweet at us.
0: I'm on at Samaya Keynes.
1: And I'm at Chad Bowne.
0: And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks.
1: That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks.
0: Because when it comes to knowing about versions of history, two would be better to know about than one.